The Bible reading today is taken from Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16, and Matthew 5, verses 6. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, The last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to you, I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Then Matthew 5, verses 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the word of God. Thank you, Chloe, for that reading. Uh, Won't you just join me in one more word of prayer as we approach this text? Heavenly Father, we are very aware in our better moments that unless we have true and deep poverty of spirit, unless we mourn our sin, unless we are full of the meekness of Christ, we will never hunger and thirst for the righteousness that can only come from you. And so we pray that you would place in us now a deep hunger and thirst for you and for your righteousness. And let us leave here with the blessing that is promised in these words. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In this beatitude, the word that probably needs the most explanation is that word righteousness. That is not a word we use in everyday conversation, except perhaps negatively. He is one self-righteous son of a gun. That's pretty much all we know about righteousness, and it isn't much, is it? On the other hand, righteousness in the Bible is a very rich concept, extremely rich. The closest English word I think that we have to describe the word righteousness is the word justice. Now, there's a word we know. There's a word we understand. I think it's fair to say that most of us care deeply about justice. We might even say in the words of our beatitude, most of us are hungry for justice. 
But then there's a problem, isn't there? Because we have different ideas of what justice is. Different visions of what a just world will look like. And people have been thinking about this since ancient times. Aristotle spoke about two types of justice. Retributive justice and distributive justice. Even today, we tend to favor one or the other. So either justice is all about the individual and how they exercise their moral agency, or justice is all about the social system and the way it distributes resources and opportunities. One emphasizes freedom, the other emphasizes equality. One focuses on sins of commission, uh, the sinful things we do, the other on sins of omission, the things we don't do, the good things we don't do. And both sins have, uh, both views, sorry, have uh, different sins at the top of their hierarchy. So for one group it might be sexual sins and the other it would be societal sins. One, it might be pedophilia, the other racism. Both views also have a vision of the good life and salvation. For one, it comes through individual responsibility. For the other, public activism. If you want to know which group you're in, you may already know. But just in case you don't, here's a test. Two kids in a sandpit. One throws sand into the other kid's eyes. Who's responsible? Who should get it? Is it the kid who threw the sand? Or is it his parents? The teacher? The sandpit manufacturer? Let's take a more serious example. The looting earlier this year. What was the issue there? Was it greed? Or was it inequality? Were you angry with the looters? Or were you angry with our post-apartheid political economy? The answer to those questions will give you a sense which view of justice you hold, which group you're in. There's one thing that actually unites these two groups. I can only think of one. For both of them, the greatest crime against justice is holding to another version of justice. That's almost the unforgivable sin. It seems like nothing makes us more angry than those who hold another view of justice. And so justice is a massively divisive issue. It divides us as a society. It can even, if we let it, divide us as a church. When someone holds another view, we tend to see it as an offense not only against some aspect of justice, but an offense against justice itself. Now, here's the enormous irony. If my layman's reading of the pop psychology is correct, then your vision of justice is largely rooted in your personality type. So we tend to think that we've pondered the issues, we've surveyed the options, and we've arrived at enlightenment. But actually, it's often got very little to do with your own moral pedigree and well-reasoned choices. It's your personality type. If that's true, then your view of justice is nothing to be proud about or to get angry about. It's largely an accident of genetics and history. But we are proud, and we do get angry. 
This is the point I'm making. We hunger for justice. We are hungry for justice. And yet, we don't ever seem to be satisfied. We'll come back to that. Before we go any further, can cut the tension in the room, we need to remember that we're in the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is Jesus' call to a counterculture. It's his manifesto for disciples. It's his, his vision of life under his gracious, saving, loving rule. And it matters to us as a local church because as Tebza was praying earlier, our mission, we have a mission. We are a redeemed family of servants on mission. And if you didn't know this, let, let me share it with you this morning. Our mission is to make disciples who make disciples. You haven't fully made a disciple under the Lord if that disciple doesn't know that their joy and responsibility is to make other disciples. So we want to make disciples who make disciples. And so we better be very clear on what a disciple is if that's our mission. These Beatitudes describe the blessing that it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we've been working through those blessings. Now, today we arrive at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's where we are. Back to our original question. What is righteousness? What does Jesus mean by righteousness? Not what's your version of justice or my vision. What does Jesus mean by righteousness? And who are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Best way to answer those questions is to see how Jesus himself used this word, righteousness, or justice as we understand it, how he used the word in the rest of Matthew's gospel. Over the course of his ministry, as Matthew records it for us, when Jesus was talking about righteousness, he basically said these four things. It comes down to this. You don't have righteousness. You can't get it for yourself. But you must have it. How do you get it? Those four things. You don't have it. You can't get it for yourself. You must have it. How do you get it? Matthew 9 verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to call the sick and the sinner. And the people he called are his disciples. And so his disciples are the sick and the sinner. They do not have righteousness. That much is clear. Firstly, you don't have it. Secondly, you can't get it for yourself. Matthew 23, verse 27. So you, scribes and Pharisees, also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In that culture, in that day, the scribes and the Pharisees were the righteous ones. They lived the righteous life. Their whole project in life 
was to get righteousness for themselves. It was their project. It was what consumed them. If anyone appeared to have righteousness, it was them. And yet, as Jesus tells us, their righteousness was hollow. It was empty. It was a fraud. If they couldn't get righteousness for themselves, no one could. You don't have it. You can't get it. And yet righteousness is something disciples of Jesus must have. Matthew 5 verse 20, just a few verses into the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You must have righteousness to get into the kingdom. And if you don't have it, Matthew 13, 49, at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them, the evil, into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is teaching. He's teaching his disciples that when it comes to righteousness, you don't have it. You can't get it for yourself. But you must have it. And so that throws out the obvious question. Well, how do we get it? That's where our parable that Chloe read to us this morning, parable of the workers in the vineyard, is so helpful to us. It's really just a simple story of a landowner who hires workers to come and work in his vineyard. And he hires them at different stages throughout the day. So some work 12 hours, some 9, some 6, some 3, and the last group that he hires work for one hour. When he hires the first batch, he agrees on the wage of a denarius. Now, for a day of unskilled labor, that was a generous wage. It was a generous wage. For the groups that follow, he simply... So that's what he agrees with the first group. And then with the groups that follow, he simply agrees to pay what is right. But then at the end of the day, he pays them all the same wage. And so, of course, it ends in a big punch-up. Management and labor fighting over wages. It's a parable about South African labor relations. No surprises. At least no surprises for us. But if you lived in the ancient Near East and you heard this story, it would have been full of surprises for you. So let's highlight a few. First surprise. First surprise is so obvious that it's easy to miss. The first surprise is that the landowner keeps going back for more workers. Now, why would he do that? What kind of farmer doesn't know how many men it's going to take to bring in the harvest or to prune the vineyards? Is he a novice? Is he new to farming? Is he a fool? Nothing in the story suggests that he is. If anything, he's the hero of the story. And here's why. He keeps going back out of compassion. He goes back out of compassion for the young men who gather in the marketplace. Look at verse 3. Open your Bible to chapter, Matthew chapter 20. It'll be useful to us as we work through it. Look at verse 3. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. You don't get the sense that he went back to the marketplace for more men. No, he's in the marketplace. He sees the men standing idle. He went to the market for other reasons. He already has his men for the day. Goes back to the market for other reasons, and then he sees the young men standing there. The New Living Translation captures it for us perfectly. It says this, 
at nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. This isn't about suddenly needing more men. You know, as if, as if there was a miraculous growth spurt in the vineyard. No, this is about compassion. Out of compassion, he brings a second group into the vineyard. The job needed five men, now he has ten. Why? Because he's a fool? No. He has compassion. He does it out of compassion, and he does the same thing three more times for the same reason. The parable is often called the workers in the vineyard. It shouldn't be called that. It should be called the compassionate landowner because he's the hero of the story. Second surprise comes in verse 8. We're out of nowhere. We suddenly introduced to a foreman. Now, where has this foreman been? The landowner has had to walk into town and back five times in the heat of the day. Why on earth didn't he send the foreman? Is he a fool? No. He has compassion. He cares so much for the young men in the marketplace that he goes in person. This is too important to delegate. He goes himself. He is the compassionate landowner. Third surprise is in verse 6. He goes back at 5 o'clock. And there's still workers standing in the marketplace. Five o'clock in the evening. There's still workers there. Standing there, hoping against hope. This is something we know well. We've all been past Builders Warehouse on a Saturday morning. And you see the guys there gathered, desperately looking for anything. Painting, plumbing, gardening, anything. But by Saturday afternoon, late Saturday afternoon, those numbers have dwindled. Normally. Most have given up any hope of getting work for the day. Not so the workers in our story. They are still there. There's nothing left of the day. But they are still there waiting, hoping, five o'clock in the afternoon. And when the landowner asks them why, their answer is basically a simple, we want to work. We might say, they are hungry and thirsty for that which only the landowner can give them. Fourth surprise, the wage. In verse 8, the landowner announces to the foreman that all the workers are going to get the same wage. Now, why would he do that? Is he a fool? No. He has compassion. And please notice that he is not guilty of underpaying anyone. He is guilty of overpaying the unworthy. If he's guilty of anything, he is guilty of compassion. He wants every worker to have the dignity of work, to have the dignity of a day's wage to take home to his family. Final surprise, the order of payment. Now this landowner could have saved himself a lot of trouble if he had just paid the men in the order in which he hired them. Then those he hired first would have taken their wage gladly and cleared off none the wiser. And everyone would go away happy with their day's wage. But he doesn't do that, does he? You're kind of pulling your hair out at this point in the story. He does the opposite. 
He deliberately instructs his foreman to pay the last first. Why would he do that? Is he looking for a fight? Is he a fool? You can say it with me. No. He has compassion. He wants to encourage his workers in compassion. He wants his workers to see and understand how compassion works. And so he pays the last first. What does all this say about righteousness and justice? It teaches us that ultimately righteousness comes from God and from God alone. He is the compassionate landowner. He is the righteous one. He defines righteousness. He establishes righteousness. He does it in person. That word for justice or righteousness, in English we have two words. It's the same word in the original. It turns up in our story in verse 4, where the compassionate landowner tells the workers, whatever is right, I will give to you. Whatever is right, I will give to you. Uh, We might say, might be tempted to say, look, that's just a detail in the story. It's about paying a fair wage. But is it really? Because remember that Jesus himself starts the parable by telling us this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. And given everything else that Jesus says about righteousness in Matthew's gospel, remember, we don't have it. We can't get it for ourselves, but we must have it. Seems to me verse 4 is about more than a wage. It's about righteousness itself. God is the one who dispenses righteousness. God is the one who defines what is just and what is right. And he makes things right. The word for righteousness turns up again in our story. Verse 13, so it's almost top and tail. After some of the workers object to the landowner's compassion, they cry injustice. The landowner responds literally, I am not being unjust to you. I am not being unrighteous. He goes on to say, I choose to give this last worker the same wage. I choose to do what I want with what belongs to me. I choose. I decide what is just, what is right. The Lord is the one who decides what righteousness is. The Lord is the one who establishes it. He is the righteous one. He is righteousness. As we've seen throughout this parable, in surprise after surprise after surprise, his righteousness, his justice, is full of compassion. It is merciful justice or just mercy. The two hold together. He's generous with everyone, from the first to the last. No one deserves a place in the vineyard. No one has a claim on a place in the vineyard or a wage for their labors that exceeds the ordinary wage. No one. He is generous with everyone, from first to last. He establishes this righteousness himself in person, in the heat of the midday sun. The generous justice of God comes at great cost to God himself. It comes at the cost of his son, who comes to us in person, the righteous one, to bear the heat 
of the midday sun on our behalf. How do the unemployed young men get justice? The landowner gives it to them as a gift. How do we get righteousness? God gives it to us in the gift of his son. That's the witness of Matthew's gospel. You don't have righteousness. You can't get it for yourself. But you must have it. And so the only place to get it is from God as a gift. As I said at the beginning, uh, if you look around at our society, we all have different visions of justice. It's what these latest elections were reminding us of. The blue party, the red party, the green party, the other party. They all have different visions of justice. So who gets to decide? If we all have different visions of justice, who gets to decide? Non-Christian thinkers have recognized for a long time that without God, without a transcendent source of justice, there is no real basis for justice at all. So who decides? The strong decide. Might is right. Whoever's boss of the game decides on the rules. That's what it comes down to. Arthur Leff was an agnostic law professor at a whole string of Ivy League universities. He wrote this essay uh, exploring justice, the, the idea of justice without a, without a God, without a transcendent source of justice. This is his conclusion. Napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. There is in the world such a thing as evil. Altogether now, says who? God help us. Remember, he's agnostic. His conclusion, as he searches for a basis, a foundation for justice without a God, his conclusion is, says who? There's no way to decide. And so the strong decide. The witness of Matthew's gospel, the witness of the whole Bible, is that justice, righteousness, has a firm foundation. And it is a personal foundation. God is righteous. God is righteousness. We see his righteousness in his mighty acts of creation and redemption. And as we relate to him, as we wander around this world... If we're honest with ourselves, we very quickly realize we are not righteous. He rescues us from that unrighteousness. And he gives us his righteousness in the person of his son. The Apostle Peter puts it like this. Christ suffered for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. In his son, God is both just and merciful. He's the compassionate landowner. At the cross, our injustice is punished. His righteousness is given as a gift. His mercy is extended to us. We heard from the Apostle Peter. Here's the Apostle Paul. The cross was to show his righteousness. What does the cross demonstrate? 
of all the things the cross demonstrates, it demonstrates the righteousness of God so that he might be both righteous and the one who makes those who have faith in Jesus righteous. So that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So that he might be both just and merciful. That's what the cross tells us. The cross is a banner of God's righteousness. His mercy, his just mercy. God is righteous and he makes us right in Jesus. And at the end of time, when the Lord Jesus returns, he will make all things completely right. For now, those who are of us who have been blessed by this free gift of God's righteousness we become agents of that righteousness in the world. In thanksgiving and obedience, we extend his generous justice to a world that so desperately needs it, to a world that is hungry and thirsty for real justice, the kind that only God can give. That's righteousness. That's what it means. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for it? Well, in one sense, this is ground we've already covered. It means, in the terms of Matthew's gospel, it means if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, it means you know you don't have it. You know you can't get it for yourself. You know you must have it. That's hunger and thirst for righteousness. Looking desperately to the only one who can give it. It means you're like the worker, still in the marketplace at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, still waiting, watching, hoping, craving, Longing for justice. Longing for righteousness. Knowing that you can only get it as a gift from the landowner. The compassionate landowner. The blessing of this beatitude is knowing that the landowner will give it to you. He will give it to you in full. You will be satisfied. That's what it says. That's the blessing. You will eat your fill. Your thirst will be quenched. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Now how does that extraordinary blessing that will be ours fully at the end of time when the Lord Jesus returns, how does that reach back into our lives now, today? How does it help us think about justice in our own lives today. Four things. Humility, generosity, appetite, and warning. Humility. If I recognize I don't have justice, I can't get it for myself, I must have it. It only comes to me as a gift from God. That's the only way it comes to me. Do you see how that humbles me enormously? How it humbles us? When I recognize that injustice in the world starts with me, then when I see it in others, I'll be that much more compassionate. So I've often used uh, the example of the advertising slogan, you are not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. The brilliance of that sign is that it's so obvious. That's why it makes us chuckle. 
it's so obvious we miss it because we hate traffic. Traffic infuriates us. How easy to miss the fact that we are traffic. It's the same with injustice. Injustice infuriates us. But injustice starts with me. So obvious that we miss it. And as far as I can see, that's half the problem in our angry, nasty, divisive arguments over justice. They simply don't acknowledge, on both sides, they don't acknowledge injustice starts with me. And so both sides of the argument can be harsh and hollow. Those who favor individual responsibility can be harsh in blaming the suffering of others exclusively on their own choices. They can also be hollow. They might have the moral details of their lives all in order, but they ignore the plight of the poor and the widow and the orphan and the alien, those who are so precious in God's vision of justice. And those who favor social justice can be just as harsh in their judgment of people who don't care for the oppressed in exactly the same way they do. They can also be hollow. They might be incredibly noble and active in the community, but very quick to ignore the dark corners of their own lives. Both sides are often angry and judgmental in their dealings with each other. Both sides can be harsh and hollow. That's why we may be hungry for justice, but we're never satisfied. Because we hunger after a justice of our own making. And that justice is a watery soup at best. It will never satisfy. Of course, the Lord Jesus won't allow us to be so lopsided and partial in our vision of justice. He is building a kingdom. The Bible calls it the home of righteousness, this kingdom. A kingdom is a social reality. But he's building that kingdom one sinner at a time. The revolution of righteousness is inside out, one soul at a time. And yet, every individual soul is then called to live out her righteousness in the kingdom. Do you see? If we know that Jesus cares passionately to the point of shedding his blood about both the individual and the social dimensions of righteousness, if we remember that injustice in the world starts with me, it will humble us. And we won't be so self-righteous in our dealings with those who have a different vision of justice. That's humility. Secondly, generosity. And the second is related to the first. Generosity and humility are bound up in each other. When we think about how compassionate the landowner is in extending justice to his workers, when we think about how compassionate God is in extending his righteousness to us, it humbles us and it frees us to deal with others in the same way. When my righteousness comes as a free gift in and only in Christ, when my unrighteousness is freely forgiven in and only in Christ, surely I'm empowered to forgive others. I haven't had to earn my place with God. God himself paid my way. 
He absorbed the full cost of my forgiveness. Surely I can absorb the cost that others impose on me. It's a minute fraction in comparison. I am freely forgiven. And so I can freely forgive. But you say to me, how can I possibly forgive this injustice? You have no idea what he did to me. And I say, remember the promises of the gospel. God himself has underwritten justice, has guaranteed justice. Justice will be served. It's either served at the cross or it will be served when Jesus returns on that great day of justice. It's one or the other. Justice is served. And because I know justice is secure, I can freely extend mercy and leave justice to God, to the only just justice judge that there is. I can leave it to him. We have two infinitely powerful motives to forgive. God himself underwrites justice and he lavishes me with the most extraordinary mercy. I'm free to forgive. I can be generous in forgiveness. Third, appetite. Knowing that we will be filled, that that day is coming, we can hunger and thirst for righteousness now. Justice will be fully served. We've just said it. It will be served. Righteousness will reign uncontested. That means my hunger and thirst for it now is a blessing. It's the paradox of these blessings. My hunger and thirst for righteousness now is actually a blessing. My appetite need no longer be the angry, bitter, resentful, petulant demand that my version of justice is satisfied. That self-righteous demand. It need no longer be that, my hunger and thirst for righteousness. Instead, it can be the passionate but joyful, cheerful, forgiving, patient hunger that eagerly anticipates the final righteousness of God that only the Lord Jesus can bring. I can pursue righteousness with a zeal that knows that righteousness matters to God. I can also pursue righteousness with a humility and a generosity that knows that I'm part of the problem. I can pursue righteousness with the freedom that knows that ultimately righteousness does not depend on me. And I can pursue righteousness with the patience that knows that we will still hunger in this life. But we will be fully satisfied when the Lord Jesus comes. Finally, a warning. Because remember, the other side of every blessing in the Beatitudes is a woe. Matthew 5 and Matthew 23 are in dialogue with each other. And the woe is for hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who sets up their own standard of justice and is strict and demanding and uncompromising in holding others to that standard, but quite forgiving on themselves. Jesus says, woe to you, you hypocrite. We see the landowner issuing a similar kind of warning to those who were grumbling, to those who rejected his generous justice and wanted to set up their own version of justice. He calls their leader friend, 
but that word is a polite way of referring to a, a stranger, of greeting a stranger. So there's a distance that comes between God and those who want to establish their own vision of justice, their own path to righteousness. He warns this friend against begrudging that which is good. And then the conversation ends. It's a cliffhanger. We left hanging. We don't know how the story plays out. We left to process this warning and work it out in our own lives, knowing that those who are first by the standard of their own justice will be lost by the standard of God's justice. That is a serious warning to every single one of us here this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your extraordinary, generous justice. Thank you that your justice is full of compassion. Thank you for making us righteous in Christ and in Christ alone. As we wait, Lord Jesus, for you to set all things right at the end of the age, help us. Help us to be agents of your righteousness with humility, with generosity, and a real hunger to see your will be done. Thank you for warning us against measuring you and others against our own standard of justice. Help us to live in the blessed knowledge that when we hunger for your righteousness, we will be satisfied. Amen.